Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. This is Mike Weiss. I'm Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. I decided to continue the coverage of Afghanistan, given the latest developments, for at least another episode, perhaps two. As I'm recording this, it has just been reported that there were two suicide bombings outside uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, disrupting the, what, the tail end, I guess, of the evacuation plan. There are reported casualties, including a U.S. servicemen and Afghan civilians. My guest today is uh, Michael Pregent. He's a former company commander in Afghanistan. He worked in U.S. Army intelligence in Iraq as well and worked at CENTCOM for three years. He's currently a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, a very outspoken critic of the withdrawal plan and of the administration. And I wanted to pick his brain on why that is. Mike, it's great to have you on. I kind of know what you think as I see your Twitter feed and your Facebook posts, but it's important, I think, to have your perspective on this. So first of all, let's just deal with the, the breaking news here. Who do you suspect blew stuff up, including people outside the airport this morning? Well, thanks for having me, Mike. And, and you know, the last time you and I talked, it was during the ISIS yep. so in Iraq that was like that likely happened because the same team that brought us that fiasco in, in Iraq is now the same team doing the same thing in Afghanistan, unfortunately. So let's talk about today. If it's ISIS-K, it fits the narrative. And I know you hate that word, the narrative, yeah, or the phrase, the narrative. If it's Al-Qaeda, it embarrasses the administration. If it's the Taliban, it embarrasses the administration. So the focus is on ISIS-K. But what I would argue, Mike, is that they all work together when they have a common enemy. They have a common enemy now in the U.S. The Al-Qaeda affiliate, the Haqqani Network, is in charge of Kabul security. The Taliban are in charge of checkpoints. Al-Qaeda high-value targets were released from the Bagram detention facility. And if this was an ISIS-K suicide bomber, this was a coordinated attack as one bombing went off at the Barron Hotel, the other one at the Abbey Gate at Hamid Karzai International Airport. They went through Taliban checkpoints. They evaded, and I'm saying that in quotations, the Haqqani Network's intelligence apparatus in Kabul that's been there basically for 20 years. Yeah, this flies in the face of the conventional wisdom, which is, well, perhaps it doesn't, but let, let's just give a little historical context. I mean, ISIS-K, a lot of the, the senior leadership comes from either the ranks of disaffected Afghan Taliban or Pakistani Taliban fighters who broke with the organization for whatever doctrinal ideological reasons. There are a lot of foreign fighters that have poured in and joined ISIS-K ranks in the last few years. But it is the case that in the lead up to this U.S. withdrawal uh, and even ongoing, the Taliban has been at war with this group, right? I mean, they have fought pretty ferociously. I had um, Wesley Morgan on, who, who wrote a very good book on Afghanistan, who even found evidence at one point, and, and you'll appreciate this from studying the sort of coalition warfare against ISIS in, in Iraq. At one point, U.S. aircraft were essentially giving de facto close air support to Taliban fighters, knowing that they would overtake ISIS, who they were bombing at the time. And this is going to touch upon this sort of narrative kabuki theater that, that you alluded to earlier. So I take your point. I mean, if, say, you know, there's no love lost between ISIS-K and the Taliban, it's still not beyond the realm of plausibility that the Haqqani network uh, as the intel and Taliban as the checkpoint security simply allowed these guys through, knowing what they were going to get up to. And from their perspective, I, I mean, look, this will only reinforce the administration's desire to get the hell out and to adhere to the August 31 deadline, right? I mean, this upends the remainder of the evacuation scheme, but it's not, it's not like this is going to 
push a reset button on the policy, right? So for the Taliban, this is sort of their, if they were indeed complicit or accomplice to this attack, this would be kind of their final fuck you to the United States, right? Yeah, they have a policy of making us bleed on the way out. Each one of these groups has the capability of doing of conducting the attack that happened. Right. And real quick, Mike, I mean, you, you and I have looked at all the militias that apparently hate each other in Iraq, but they work together to attack Americans while we were there. Right. Absent our presence, they fight each other. When we are present, they come after us. And we criticized the, the Trump administration. Uh, we didn't cheerlead the Trump administrations. When I say we, the people that were invited to State Department to sit around and listen to the Trump administration say that they are brokering a deal with the Taliban where they denounced al-Qaeda and they promised not to kill Americans. Yeah. Before they ended up releasing 5,000 HVTs, Taliban HVTs. So high value targets is what that means. So the U.S. air support to the Taliban to take on ISIS-K was part of that deal to get the Taliban to see that, hey, we can work together and, and fight terrorism. Remember, ISIS is what was used to argue that we should accept the role of Iran's militias in Iraq. And ISIS-K is being used as the argument that we should accept the role of the Taliban as, a, as an ally, in quotations, that will facilitate the U.S. exit out of Afghanistan. Yeah, I'm not saying that they coordinated together. I'm just saying they may have taken a tactical pause to allow an attack to happen. And this is just the beginning of this. This isn't a one-off. This will continue. And part of this too is, let's just let's just take the narrative that ISIS-K and Taliban are mortal enemies. Well, ISIS-K just embarrassed the Taliban, just embarrassed the administration. But the, the administration is so focused on this ISIS-K threat that it's, it's almost laughable to those of us that have looked at the terrorist groups and how they operate when Americans are present. They all want to see us bleed on the way out, and they're happy to fight afterwards. The primary objective now is to make Americans bleed on the way out, and then to go and capture, kill, ransom, sell Americans into other jihadist groups. What were you advocating as a, a matter of policy? I mean, were you in favor, I presume you were, of, of leaving a residual garrison in the country to kind of, well, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What did you think that we should have done going forward with respect to Afghanistan? Well, I've been critical of our policy for about a decade and a half. We haven't really had a strategy to win in Afghanistan. I, I've made this, the point that uh, we've fielded 20 teams over 20 years, each with a different strategy, each with a different a set of priorities. And the Taliban just sat there and developed a playbook. And every year we gave the Taliban a, a break, a, the winter spring training, or uh, correction, a winter uh, respite in Peshawar in Pakistan. We let the Taliban refit, rearm, regroup every year. And the first year we allowed that to happen, that's when the Taliban knew they could weigh this out. Every member of the Afghan National Army, every member of the Afghan government has been told by the Taliban the last 20 years that we will always be here and the U.S. will leave one day and we will remember what you did. And we are seeing that promise uh, fulfilled, unfortunately. Now, you're seeing a lot of people argue that, look, this was a hopeless cause from the outset. Look at the endemic corruption in the sort of the Afghan military and political establishment. I mean, billions, if not more, hundreds of billions of dollars just siphoned off American taxpayer money. This was an unwinnable war. Uh, regardless of what the strategy was, it was never going to succeed. And then the, the sort of corollary is, well, there was no good way to get out of the country once the president decided on that path. In other words, this was all, something like this was always going to happen. And oh, by the way, the metrics are even better than what we anticipated, right? Uh, 
the latest counts, 85,000 or so uh, have been evacuated. And, you know, yes, we're making every effort to try and rescue every remaining American stranded in Kabul and the outlying areas, and not to mention other Afghans with, with civs. I, I know you're going to say that's also a narrative, but give me your point of view. I mean, what, what does that get right or wrong? Well, wh- when I worked at at CINCOM, it was after spending five years in Iraq, working the awakening, the surge, building up a static security force to go against Al-Qaeda. So when I started working the Afghan uh, problem set and looking at the Afghan National Army, we were shrinking our footprint at the same time we were validating this force, meaning we were embedded at the platoon level, at the, at the company level, at the battalion level. And then we started only being embedded at the brigade level, at the division level. So we had no eyes on the ground, absent the U.S. special operators working with Afghan commandos, to assess the force's willingness to fight. And every year, the force would be cut in half, but another 150,000 would be recruited and added to it. So the force builds in the wintertime. It looks like a very strong force. And when the fighting season begins, it starts to melt away. That happened for the last 12 years, Mike. So we never really had eyes on. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, certified the Afghan National Army as capable 30 days before this fiasco. That's how blind we were to the capabilities of the Afghan National Army. Now, I would also argue they bore the brunt of the fatalities and that we took away air power and intel, but we also inflated their capabilities. I'm not talking about the commandos. I'm talking about the Afghan National Army. I'm not talking about every battalion or every brigade, but I'm talking about the whole. And then there's the political leadership. We always thought they were going to leave, Mike. We thought as soon as we would leave, they would take their golden parachutes and exit the country. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to ask you that, too, because you're, you're former U.S. Army intel. You, you served in DIA, and one of your responsibilities in Iraq was mapping the insurgency and, and finding out sort of how they think, both tactically and strategically. I mean, do you credit this notion that U.S. intel simply had too rosy of a view as to the, the Taliban's capability that, you know, this, this idea that it'd take three months for them to retake Kabul. Do you think that Intel community is being hung out to dry for political reasons here, or is there some truth to making these kind of overly optimistic appraisals? Because we don't, as you said earlier, we don't really have eyes on as to what's going on. The intelligence becomes more optimistic, the smaller our footprint gets. Yeah. And it, it should be the opposite. It should go in the opposite direction. When you shrink your footprint, you lose your capability to know what's going on the ground. So the majority of intel, when you shrink your footprint down to 2,500 people, is based on government officials and the Afghan government telling you what the capabilities are, or U.S. officials telling the intel community what the capabilities are. So the intel community ends up relying on an exum from a U.S. official talking to an Afghan official, and that becomes a human report. And then you have... The ability, if you're an Afghan official, to pick up a phone and talk for about five minutes about the capabilities of the Afghan military, and that becomes a SIGINT report. So I'm very critical of our lack of growth and our capabilities when it comes to human networks and finding out what's going on on the ground, because we're over-reliant on U.S. officials telling us these good news stories from Afghan officials who know what we want to hear and know that we're listening. And we can look at Iraq. We had the same good news story there, even before the fall, even before ISIS rolled in, we were getting good news reports out of the intel community. There were some outliers, some, some Cassandras that were warning about ISIS. And then even before Qasem Soleimani was hit, 
we had good news stories again. And if you look at the majority of the intel coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan, it's U.S. officials engaging with host nation officials to paint an intelligence picture. And that's why we get such bad estimates and, and assessments out of the intel community. So bad that General Milley and General and, and Secretary Austin uh, looked at us in that press briefing and said, uh, we have not received intelligence stating that the, the Taliban will be able to take over the country. And those are hypotheticals and we're not, we're not gonna answer those questions. So they tried to tell, throw the intelligence community under the bus. Now there are Cassandras inside the intelligence community that warned about all this, but by the time their assessment, this most dangerous course of action or this threat assessment, this warning that something bad is going to happen, gets up the chain and gets briefed to a decision maker. It has been watered down, Mike. It has been changed. There's a phrase in the intel community. We're here to support the warfighter. Most bad intel officers believe that means paint a rosy picture for our commanders. Let's tell them they're winning. But what it really should mean to those of us in the military as intel officers as we grew up, it means you tell a decision maker what he needs to know, not what he wants to hear. Let me play devil's advocate with you for a moment. I mean, you're painting a picture of a kind of institutional crisis at all levels of American government, from the military to the intelligence community, to the executive branch, to, I mean, Christ, even, even the legislative branch. I mean, Congress is not really kind of doesn't have a coherent strategy or, or point of view on what to do in Afghanistan. I mean, even within each party, there are you know, rival factions. To say nothing of, you know, trillions of dollars spent fighting the global war on terror, wherever it reared its ugly head or we, we so deigned it, it to have done. Complete and utter failure in Afghanistan. Failure really in Iraq. I mean, the, the big winner of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq, as you and I have noted for years, is, is really Iran and more specifically the Quds Force of, of the IRGC. There seems to be a very persuasive argument, which is gaining ground, both on the left and the right in this country, that, look, Hollis, like, let's just wipe our hands clean of this part of the world. Like, every time we try to do any anything, we fuck it up. You know, kind of Middle East fatigue, Middle East exhaustion, and Middle East absolute disenchantment is a very seductive argument right now. And I mean, even those of us who might have supported some of these interventions, can't help but conclude that there's, there's nothing to write home about in any of them. What do you say to that argument? This is what I would say to that. We, we can look at 2001, 2002, 2003 as successes in Afghanistan. We can look at 2007 and 2008 as a success in Iraq. And we have to look at those administrations at the time and what they did and what they surged and what their focus was. And it was on killing the enemy. It was solely focused on killing the enemy and establishing a capability with our allies on the ground to kill the enemy. Those other years were focused on the wrong things. Let's build a force that doesn't work in this region. Let's build a capability that doesn't work in this region. Let's build, you know, let's nation build. That doesn't work. I don't know if democracies can win wars anymore. Mm. I say that because you literally have two years to get it right and get out. And if you stay beyond that, it may be a new Congress, a new administration, a new... It's not like you start a war at the beginning of your, your term as soon as you walk in. It depends on where you start that war. Uh, Bush started the surge in 2007, and a year later, Obama came in and dismantled the whole thing. Obama did the Iran deal in 2015, and then Trump came in in 2016, and then 2017 unraveled it. Right. You have two years, a two-year window of opportunity, unfortunately, in democracies where you have political capital, enough political capital to do the right thing. And if you don't get it done in those two years, Mike, and just focus on killing bad guys, 
and building up a, a capability to continue to kill bad guys. I mean, Biden may have been right early on at post 9-11 when he said this should be an intelligence and special operations war yes. solely focused on killing bad guys. The problem was he was so discredited for, for past comments that nobody believed him when he said that. Right. Now, I would say that that's where we probably should have stayed. And when we start doing what our adversaries don't, Russia didn't go into Syria to fix the whole country. Russia went into Syria to get an airfield, a port, and have influence. China doesn't go into these countries to fix everything. China goes into these countries to exploit. Right. We go in with this holistic approach to fix everything, and we fuck it all up. And there's this high-flown rhetoric, I mean, which is largely a vestige, I think, of the 20th century and, and sort of post-Cold War triumphalism, you know liberal democracy and human rights and the emancipation of women and all of these things. And, but fundamentally, we cannot deliver on what we say we intend to do, right? You know, on Monday, we're doing counterinsurgency. On Tuesday, we're doing counterterrorism. On Wednesday, we're building schools for girls. And on Thursday, we're saying, oh, you know, well, sorry, but, you know, the, the feminism is not a justification for forever wars, you know? We're going to fly, fly the LGBTQ flag over the embassy right. on, on Friday, right. you know, on, on, on prayer day, Mike, of all days. The role that social media and digitized media has played in kind of propounding some of these, they're, they're not just narratives, they're, they're kind of sort of rhetorical systems of thought, you know, where we say certain things, but it, it, it doesn't actually cohere. There's no, no, no real material advantage to them or, there, or no policy that looks to pursue them. I think this has really been kind of like the, the most damaging thing for America's, whatever credibility. I mean, credibility is, as I said before, it's like virginity. Everybody keeps losing it and regaining it all the time. You know, like people will still want to work with the United States. I'm not so fatalistic to think that, that, that it's over. But, you know, during the Cold War, we had moments of detente. We had moments of hawkish containment strategy. But it seemed to be that there was a consistent strategy, uh, you know, 25-year strategy, 50-year strategy, that abided across Republican and Democratic administrations alike. Soviet totalitarianism is a threat. We should do everything we can to help people who are fighting it and to hurt people who are advancing it. Full stop, right? Right. You know, in our, in our toxic, uh, you know, climate here in, in D.C. especially, we, we politicize everything, Mike. The Cold War are probably behind us where we have united front against a regime, you know, a brutal regime. We just don't have that anymore. What, what I will say is that every American on the ground that ever worked directly with the Afghans who made a promise meant it. He didn't fail. She didn't fail. The leadership fell. And I would say that our enemies are so strategic and patient that they see election outcomes that favor them. And that's why we have election interference. That's why we have this wait and see what we can get. You and I both saw what our adversaries were able to do after the JCPOA was signed, uh, when ISIS rolled in. Our adversaries got all they can. The same team that gave us that permissive environment for adversaries has three and a half more years in office. And we're seven months in, we're already seeing, eight months in, we're already seeing what our adversaries are doing. Our enemies are strategic, they're patient. The next 9-11 was probably already planned 10 years ago. It's probably already in the works, just waiting for an execution date. And uh, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we're handing all of our adversaries and geopolitical foes a win. Our geopolitical foes see us as weak, our allies see us as, as weak and they are shaken, and our enemies see us as weak and they are going to exploit this permissive environment. 
I think also, I mean, I don't know what you make of this, but the idea that we, that the forever wars are coming to an end. I mean, I, I actually think that they're just being it just expands reassigned as invisible wars. You know, I mean, Pelosi's office and Biden in his interview with Stephanopoulos disclaim that there are U.S. troops in Syria when there are at least 500, but probably even more than that. I mean, we're not going to stop going after the bad guys where we see fit. Exactly. I wouldn't even say it's political. It's ideological at this point. You know, we are ending the interventions. Hey, well, we're not really doing that. We're just going to keep it off A1 of the New York Times, right? We will continue to reintroduce America's sons and daughters to conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Syria and other places as our enemies and geopolitical foes fracture American resolve in these areas. Uh, it's unfortunate. We didn't end forever wars, but we may have ended forever trust in the United States if you're an ally. Well, I mean, you hear this all the time, right? I mean, the, the Kurds of, of Northern Iraq will say, so, well, we, we don't want to work with the IRGC, but hell, at least the Iranians and the Russians, like they have the resolve. They, they, when they tell us they're, they're going to help us, they do. Whereas the Americans, you know, they, they pat us on the head and they say, you're a great stalwart ally in the fight against Al Qaeda. But then the next thing you know, Kirkuk has fallen to the Shia militias backed by Qasem Soleimani. I mean, so th there is certainly some truth to that. Don't you think that when push comes to shove, the United States offers to help, even though it's a duplicitous ally, uh, most people will line up and ask for U.S. help as opposed to seeking the Russians or the Iranians or the Chinese, if they're, you know, kind of on side to begin with. In other words, if, if they need a, a rescue by U.S. hard power. I mean, this is the question of credibility, right? Is it forever shot or is it, does it just take a bloody nose and then, it, you know, it recovers? Well, the only Americans the Kurds trust are the ones that have worked with them on the ground level. The only Americans the Sunnis trust are the ones that worked with them during the surge, during the awakening. And the only Afghans that trust Americans now are the ones that worked with those that are still resisting in the Panjir Valley. I think as far as American credibility at the leadership level, yes, our, people will take our, our assistance, but they'll immediately begin hedging their bets. Uh, they'll immediately be, you know, I was in, uh, in Riyadh when uh, we were shutting down uh, the uh, weapon cells to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And they simply said, listen, we know you're going to resell weapons to us in the future, but in the meantime, we're just going to buy Russian and Chinese equipment. Sure, we'll have to buy three drones to make one work, but they are happy to sell them to us. And, uh, you know, a real quick thing on current leadership, General Austin uh, was the commander in Iraq when we drew down. And he had this conversation with Masoud Barzani in, in, in Erbil. Masoud Barzani was warning about Maliki in 2011, warning that he was politicizing the Iraqi security forces. General Austin at the time said, don't worry about Maliki, I can handle Maliki. And everybody in the room that spoke Arabic and Curtis laughed. Austin was serious. So that tells you that our allies on the ground know our enemies better than we do. Our allies on the ground know, our, know who's uh, keeping them from succeeding in government better than we do. And our hubris and our continued promotion and elevation of those that practice this at a disastrous level, like we saw in Iraq then and like we're seeing in Afghanistan now, uh, should resign. They should resign or they should be fired. But there doesn't seem to be any backbone in the leadership uh, within the White House or Biden's national security team. Well, because I think the president supports it. You know, to him, this is just acceptable. It's a new cycle for him. 
Mike, he thinks he's going to survive this. It's a new cycle for him. And he thinks in two weeks, no one's going to care. And I just, I don't see that happening when an American's on. Well, okay. So let's, let's take the sort of the electorate's response to this, but let's also take the kind of the long game. I mean, now that the Taliban are at least nominally in control of Afghanistan, how does America get drawn back into this conflict? I mean, obviously if there's a, a, a terror attack that succeeds on U.S. soil and it is discovered that it emanated from Afghanistan, well, that's, that's probably going to send U.S. troops back in. But what do you anticipate in the next six months, a year, five years down the line, given the state of play now? Within the next year, within the next weeks, we're, we're going to hear about Americans that are being captured and are going to be in, uh, in hostage videos by either al-Qaeda, ISIS proper, and ISIS-K. We're likely to see something that horrific, Mike, on 9-11, the 20th anniversary you know, of the attack on America. We're likely to see an American on their knees in front of a flag on camera on the 20th anniversary. And how many Americans? Four to 7,000, Mike, because that's what they, they were putting out. The day before they put out this, there's only 1,500 people left. They said 10 to 15,000 Americans remain. So this 1,500 number is special because what it is is it's the people that want to leave in quotations. That is the caveat they're going to use to say that Americans that stayed behind chose to stay behind. They have no idea how many Americans are in Afghanistan, but the estimates are between four and 7,000 are left. And I, I do believe that's conservative. And a lot of Americans are choosing to stay behind and they are choosing to stay behind because they're being told, can't bring your husband with you. You can't bring your kids with you. You can't bring your, your mom and dad with you. And you know the culture, Mike, they're, they're not gonna leave their families back there. So when, when they get captured and when they get killed or ransomed or you know, there's some sort of concession asked of, of the Americans and, and you, the, the IRGC Quds Force are gonna get some Americans too. They won't kill them, but they'll use them to get concessions from this administration because that's what they do. They don't recognize dual citizens. To be as, as cynical and solipsistic as I think so many of my compatriots are these days, nobody, electorally, politically, it's not going to hurt the administration if scores of innocent Afghans, however valiantly they aligned with the United States and helped us in the war effort, get slaughtered. But it will hurt if, as you say, American civil citizens regardless of their intention to get on the first plane out or, or hang back because of family ties or whatever, if they're on their knees getting beheaded on camera, that's, that is going to fuck up Joe Biden's political future, uh, without question. And my hope is that that doesn't happen so it fucks up his future. And my hope is that doesn't happen and then his political future should be fucked anyway, based on this withdrawal and based on what he did. And the same with General Milley and Secretary Austin. Now, I only say that because I wore the uniform for 20 years. I'm a veteran of three wars. Austin was my brigade commander when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. And Milley was a great American until he became the politician general that he is today. And when he dismissed questions from the press about the intel, when he dismissed questions about the Taliban being able to retake territory, he dismissed it with vigor. And so did Secretary Austin. They called them hypotheticals, and they weren't going to address hypotheticals. And I'm not seeing that intelligence. And then they tried to leak it to the press that they've been against what Biden did to try to save themselves. And it's, it's just not going to work, Mike. The worst case scenario is the most likely case scenario. 
I heard a journalist today say that some people are warning that Afghanistan could fall, uh, could turn into a safe haven for terrorist groups as terrorist groups are operating in Afghanistan now, and a terrorist group is in charge of the country. I mean, you know, you keep saying, uh, you know, let me play devil's advocate. I would argue that I'm definitely a devil's advocate for a lot of this stuff. I'm a Cassandra, and I hate being right, Mike, because I'm happy to be wrong, but it's not in the cards based on what the administration's doing. We'll continue to send Americans back. It'll be an intel special operations fight against whatever iteration of jihadist group emerges. Some will want to be existential threats. Some will just want to be regional threats, but we're, we're not going anywhere. Well, I mean, foreign correspondents in Kabul now getting battered by people who are just party political hacks and operatives who have not set foot in the fucking Middle East, much less in a war zone, saying the media has created this fiasco. And I just go back to the last five years where, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the very warm and comforting notion was this idea of democracy dies in darkness and we need to have a free and independent and critically minded press. And now basically, you know, you're seeing from the left enemies of the people, you know, it's infuriating to me as a journalist because it's hard enough to do this job without people lionizing you or turning you into some kind of cult figure yesterday now turning on you and saying that you're, you're actually their, their worst adversary the next day. And this was a very foreseeable the minute Trump got thrown from, from office. Very foreseeable that this was going to be how things played out. I've just been really impressed with Barbara Starr and people like her that have just really, she has stumped everyone she's asked a question of. She had the Secretary of Defense not able to answer her, looking for help. She did the same thing to, uh, to Kirby. She did the same thing to... Uh, who else did she do it to? Anyway, she's, she's great. Yeah. I like what I'm seeing from the press because they care that Americans are going to be left behind. They care that Afghans are going to be left behind. They care that, that women were, were in school and learning to read. There are about three to 400 kids right now, Mike, that we're trying to get out of that country that were taught violin, the piano, and funded by the New York arts community, that they care about people. And I love the humanity of this issue and how it's bringing everybody out and they're shedding their political positions and asking tough questions. And the administration just keeps shedding it, shedding responsibility. After these two attacks, we shouldn't hear from Kirby, Mike. We should hear from General Austin. We should hear from General Milley. You know, this is not, Kirby Kirby has already been destroyed. Poor guy's tired of defending this administration. We need to hear from, I don't care if we hear from Blinken. Nobody does. Blinken has not been effective. Nobody believes what he's saying. And I'm seeing that across the board. Yeah. But to have two generals, right, that supposed to be these badasses that stared down terrorists and went after terrorists, not able to answer questions from a press because they're worried they'll be attacked on social media. It goes back to my same complaint about those generals that talk to reporters saying that the president said what he said about cowards and chumps about our, our fallen in World War II. I'll tell you, Mike, as a veteran, I would have denounced it the moment I heard from a, gen a general saying that, he, that Trump said that. I would say Trump needs to go. But those generals didn't say that, Mike. If it really happened, they sat on that for two years until there was an election to, to leak it out. And then when they were asked to go on the record, they said they were afraid to be attacked by social media. That was General Mattis and Kelly that were saying that, that they were afraid to go on record because they would be attacked. I criticized it when Mattis and McGurk resigned over Syria because they were really resigning over their own failure in Syria. They never built a Sunni force. They were against it because they thought it would collapse the JCPOA. But I would love for Austin and Milley 
to do what Madison McGurk did. They resigned in protest, and I'm waiting for some spine out of our leaders in, in DC, especially our military leaders. They, they've actually dishonored themselves. If the active duty force and the veteran community could court-martial these two, they would be court-martialed. Wow, it's pretty uh, strong indictment. I, I mean it, Mike, I'm not being emotional here. I just know what leadership's supposed to look like. And they're going to write books about how not to be, and they're going to use Secretary Austin and General Milley as examples. Because when an American is beheaded on camera shortly after we leave, it will be on their hands. They didn't protest. They didn't change the old man's mind. Now, maybe these two explosions today will change the old man's mind. And that's what generals call the boss, the old man. They need to get in there and get the old man to change his fucking mind or they need to pr protest, they need to resign and protest. Just as a final point then, let's talk sort of nitty gritty. What could be done? If you had the commander in chief's ear and you wanted to change his mind, what would you advocate doing logistically as of now? So the whole thing that people like me were advocating was to prevent what just happened. You know, we we're talking about expanding the cordon out, moving the Taliban out of Kabul, saying get out, deploying another 10,000 forces to secure the the Bagram Kabul route, that would mean you'd have to de-obstacle Bagram Air Base because there were already IEDs on it, just like ISIS did in Mosul in 2014. They had already booby-trapped it and they were already overwatching all the obstacles on the runway. They had already IED'd the paths. They already knew where they were. They had checkpoints everywhere. What we were advocating was the proper military response to this situation to be put in place 10 days ago. And now we are at a point where the military cannot do anything at this point, but redeploy more forces in. But here's what happens. As soon as you start doing suicide bombings and complex attacks, the next thing you have is air ambushes. The next thing you have is direct fire on the airfield. Cause you can look down on this airfield all around it. There are high rises behind the airfield on the Northern part where you can literally snipe, shoot people there, use heavy machine guns and, and, and cause damage. There's one runway out. And if you disabled an aircraft on that runway, you'd shut the whole thing down. So the military operation at this point is to kill bad guys. Uh, the Taliban in Helmand, the, where the leaders are, the ones in, in Kabul, you start telling them they're targets. You start going after the, the Haqqani network also. You, you put a lot of pressure on the Pakistani ISI to get their shit together and use whatever influence they have on the Taliban, which they do, on uh, ISIS-K, which they do on the Haqqani network. You know, there are so many levers we can use, Mike. And we're just not using any of them. The counter argument to that is you start killing the bad guys, then the bad guy's going to go around and start taking American hostages and doing the kind of stuff that you said is going to happen anyway once we're, we're gone. If you throw in the leadership, Mike, they, they usually tell, I mean, most of our engagements. So the CIA director, when he went down there, yeah. CIA directors in the past would go with a, a packet. And in this packet, they'll show all the places dear, near and dear to the terrorist leader's heart. This is the place where you, where you vacation. This is where your mistress lives. This is where you go on the weekends to relax. And they show them all the properties that are about ready to get destroyed. Then they show them families that are close to the leader that are about to be destroyed if they don't get control of their people. That's what the agency does when they have these meetings. They, they show the loss. And the Israelis are the best at this. They show what they're about to lose if they continue. Now, how do you prevent four to 7,000 Americans from becoming hostages? You can't because you created the situation. But when you leave, they are going to become hostage regardless. So you should at least go out there and try to save them. Now, I do believe there's going to be an intel and special operations operation to go out and find Americans after this withdrawal. It'll be uh, Hilo 
evac. It'll be other runways in the north, hopefully with whatever remnants of the Afghan National Army and the commandos that, that will work with us, that will trust us. There will be operations, but there's this whole veteran, former intel, former special operator group that's going in, some pro bono and some are charging, uh, to get Americans out, to get Afghan civs out, and to get other people out. And in some cases, they do have relationships with Taliban leaders where they can pay off a Taliban leader for about an hour and a half to get a window of opportunity going in and grab and snatch an American to get out. That's how bad it is, Mike. Yeah, look, I, <laughs> I was not... I had a pretty grim appraisal just from the the, the sort of the state of play now. Um, but you make a very dire prognostication. It's hard to disagree that, given what's taken place. Again, I, I'm really even the, the the cast of characters we've discussed who who have been just recycled from the from the Obama administration. Even with them in place, like not to plan, if only for political reasons, not to plan ahead to ensure that this doesn't become a pig's breakfast the way it has, and that it could very well become much worse than that, as you point out on the anniversary of 9-11. It seems rather extraordinary to me. You know, it's like you want to get out fine, but you have to put in place the logistics to do it carefully and as responsibly as possible. I mean, closing Bagram Air Base. Now, they will say, well, that was always part of the, the, the deal with the Taliban. We had to do it. But you've just given me a case that, look, you know, this deal with the Taliban, <laughs> it was pretty fungible. I mean, it's not like, you know, you're making a state-to-state peace treaty. This is not what this was. This was essentially an accommodation to do what was politically decided to do, which was end the war and to do and to, to keep the enemy at bay long enough so that we could get everyone out. Well, we haven't done either yet. And it sounds like the war is, is, is not coming to an end, especially if Americans start getting killed. You know, when our friends at the state invited those of us that thought they thought were friendly to the administration to discuss the... Uh, ongoing negotiations with, with the Taliban, everyone around that table just shook their head and, and laughed Yeah, and said, there's no way. And, and, and if you see the people that they keep touting, to keep bringing out that were part of the Trump administration's, uh, I mean, Khalil Azad should resign or be fired also. But if you look at some of the, the people that they've been bringing out, they said, yeah, I sat across on the, this guy's like 25 years old, 30 years old. You, you know what a Taliban commander looks at an American who's 25 years old. Yeah. There was a signals intercept uh, back during uh, 2002 where the, the Taliban said, hey, we need more boys and bullets. The bullets were for guns. The boys were for other things. That's how they look at the people that sat across from them. No experience. Youth. Youth is great in America, but in this part of the world, they want to see older people that have been there before, veterans, people that know what's going on, on the ground. Yeah. Not somebody who just is there because the Trump administration asked them to be there. It's a pathetic, uh, self-congratulatory uh, position that they're taking that the Taliban wouldn't have betrayed us because we were different. Holy shit, Mike. They're just showing the pictures right now of, of the uh, the casualties from these suicide bombings. Yeah, it I- is, there are hundreds Jesus. Four U.S. Marines were killed and three were wounded, according to the Wall Street Journal. Jesus. Yeah, so that, that should sink an administration, Mike. They could have spread the cordon out. They could have got more forces in. They could have done it right. There's so many things. And they keep saying, well, we can armchair quarterback that later. We can we, No, this is a thing that was happening in real time that could have been fixed in real time that was ignored by leadership. And now that they leak out to the press, like, yeah, we were against this. We wanted him to, you know, 
And then they congratulate themselves because they flew three Chinook helicopters over the wall, 200 yards to go get some Americans at the Barron Hotel and bring them back or wherever it was. Uh, they're going to try to make a movie about that, Mike. It's a successful mission, just like the uh, Zero Dark Thirty movie where they where basically Gates went in and told Brennan and told others to shut the fuck up and stop talking to, to, the, uh, to Hollywood about what happened. Do you remember that? Yeah. Listen, Mike, you and I get together and, and sort of grouse this way and lament the state of things anyway. I figured we might as well do it while the mic is recording. Yeah, look, we've had our political disagreements in the past, especially the last couple of years. But I, I mean, I, I do really think you've got a, a beat on this stuff. And, and I always value your expertise on, you know, the situation in Iraq, you were kind of, you were Cassandra, but you were also prescient in a way that a lot of people just refuse to be for whatever reason. And uh, yeah, I think I think that the events that as they unfolded there have borne you out. And I'm, I mean, I'm sorry to say this, but I think they're going to vindicate you too with respect to Afghanistan. So it, it was great to, to chat with you and get your insights. I'm always happy not to be vindicated, Mike. I'm always happy to be wrong. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Mike. And again, it, it got so bad that I've been on CNN twice. That's how bad it is. <laughs> on that note, uh, you've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. See you next time.